Merry Christmas! Welcome to the sermon podcast from Mount Hope Belmont, where each week you will hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others, so you can go and live your life driven by faith. In this special Christmas series, we are going to find out the reason we celebrate Christmas. What's so great about celebrating the birth of Jesus? What sort of questions come up in your mind? Like, who is Jesus? Why Bethlehem? What do these Christmas carols all mean? Join us for the next few weeks as we celebrate and remember why Jesus was born 2,000 years ago and how it is still a joyful news to us as followers of Jesus. And I pray that after listening to this message, may you be blessed as we hear about the birth of Jesus Christ. Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Justin. I serve on our ministry team here at Mount Hope, and it's wonderful to see you this beautiful Sunday morning in December. As we talk about Christmas here at Mount Hope and the birth of Jesus Christ and what that means to each of our lives, a couple of days ago, we celebrated a little bit of a milestone in our house. My oldest son turned eight years old a couple of days ago. Yeah, which is pretty big, eight years old. But it also reminded me that I am now living in a window that is shrinking faster and faster every single day. And let me tell you what that window is. It's a window where my sons still think that dad knows everything. And that's shrinking fast because now they understand what I already knew, that dad knows very little. And now all of their questions, which seemed so easy to answer before, suddenly seem a little bit trickier to answer every single day. In fact, when my son was turning eight a couple of days ago, we asked him what he would like for his birthday. And one of the things he mentioned was, I want a chess board. I want to learn how to play chess, which quickly exposed his dad as a fraud. So he, one of the things that he learned is that dad, when he said, dad, can you teach me how to play chess, is that dad does not really know how to play chess. Now, I know some of the rules. I know what some of the pieces do and that type of thing, but I can't really play this game because there's something that happens in chess that my son's dad is not very good at, and that is very simply this. Chess is a game where the person who can predict two moves ahead or can move or think strategized a couple of moves ahead is typically rewarded. It's a game that says, if you do one thing, I will do another thing because I can anticipate your move and I can anticipate the move I will make as a result. There's a lot happening in chess but there's not a lot happening up here for me. So for for me, it's a very difficult game to play. It's a very difficult game to teach to my children because there's a lot happening, a lot that I'm not good at. Here's what also happens in chess. When the game starts, there's all kinds of hope. There are pieces on my side, there are pieces on my son's side, and there's all kinds of hope. Anything can happen. I could possibly win. Good things can come. But chess also has this time filled with incredible fear when you start getting cornered and you don't know what will happen next. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, this idea of hope and fear coming into one place and how we respond to these situations where we have to answer the question, what happens next? This morning we sang a song, a song that many of us have been singing since we were children when it comes to this time of Christmas. It's a song called, O Little Town of Bethlehem. I want us to look at the words for one second. 
O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I'm wondering if all of us have ever taken the time to think through that last line. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Hopes and fears. Those words don't seem to go together, do they? Fear is this terribly, terribly negative thing that drives us to sometimes do irrational things. Hope is this incredibly positive thing that makes us filled with joy, that gives us this reason to live, this reason to face the day ahead. Yet for some reason, when this songwriter put the two together, it makes sense. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This morning, I want us to take a minute to look at the most famous place of birth in history, the most famous city when it comes to where someone was born and what that someone would do in all of history. Of course, I'm talking about Bethlehem, this town, this little town that had a massive impact on history, and I want us to get an idea of why that's important and what was going on in the grand scheme of things to answer the question, what happens next? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a small book within the Old Testament. I'll give you a second to look for it if you'd like, but if you can't find it, don't worry about it. The verses will be up on the screen right behind me. In the book of Ruth, we hear a story of a family from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is not just a town that suddenly sprouted up when Mary and Joseph decided to stop by at an inn that day. Bethlehem has been in recorded history and in the Bible since the very beginning. Even in the book of Genesis, the, book, the city of Bethlehem is mentioned. But one thing we see is throughout history, Bethlehem has these tiny little references until we come to the book of Ruth when a family from Bethlehem is the star of the entire story. And so if you don't know the story, let me give you a quick synopsis of what happens in the book of Ruth. There is a family, a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. These, this family of four are living in Bethlehem when the weather and the climate turn against them and no crops are growing and a famine breaks out in the land of Bethlehem. There is a terrible famine that's killing people and so Elimelech and Naomi make a decision, we need to leave this area and move to another place and they hear that there is food and there is prosperity, there is a hope, there is a future in an area called Moab. Now you should understand Moab and Bethlehem, Moab and Judah, they are not friendly. They are not two peoples that would get along well with each other. Moab was the enemy of the people of Bethlehem. And so this was a risk that they were taking. This was something done out of desperation to move from Bethlehem to Moab, but they do it. And this family of four go there and they settle in Moab. And while they are there, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, meet women from that land and they marry. One marries a woman named Orpah and the other marries a woman named Ruth, for whom this book is named. And so years go by. The Bible says about 10 years pass. And after those 10 years pass, Elimelech, the father, he passes away. Malon and Kilion, the two sons, pass away. And ultimately, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws are left. Naomi, 
Orpah and Ruth. And now they are in this critical decision-making moment where they have to answer the question, what happens next? So if you'll follow with me, I'm going to read from Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 and following. We read there like this. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth from me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? What is it about hope and fear working together? Again, like we said, they don't seem to have anything in common with each other, except both of them tend to be the answer to one major question that you and I ask almost every day, and that question is, what happens next? If you're like me, at any given point in the week, you will ask this question and you will be fueled either by fear or by hope when you ask that question. What happens next at work? What happens next with my physical body? What happens next with my children? What happens next with my parents? What happens next with anything that you're going on through finances or through work or through education? What happens next is one of the most common questions that you and I struggle with every single day. And the truth is, the answer to that question is more often than not fueled by fear or by hope. But it's often by fear. We answer that question out of fear. What happens next? I don't know, therefore I will worry about it. What happens next? I have no control, therefore I'll let anxiety drive what happens next. You see, fear and hope have a relationship. And that relationship is in answering the question, what happens next? Ruth and Naomi were two women that were now widows. I want you to think about this for a second, and let's take off our lenses that we're seeing the world through in the 21st century of America. If you were a widow at the time that Ruth and Naomi are leaving Moab, life did not have a lot of hope. 
desperation would have taken over because you're not just thinking about your Social Security or your Medicare 10 years from now or 20 years from now. You're thinking about your next meal from now because there was very little hope for survival if you are a widow living in this time. If there was no man to provide for you, if there was no man to give you an inheritance or a future or children to pass this down to, there was no hope. And Naomi says it over and over again when she speaks to Ruth, if I had hope, if there was any chance for me, I would have given you away, but there is no hope. And Naomi answers the question, what happens next? Filled with fear. And so she looks to her daughter-in-law who's clinging to her and saying, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you die, I will die. Your gods will be my gods. That daughter-in-law clings to her and the two of them set forth from Moab back to Bethlehem, all in this quest to figure out what will happen next. The truth is every one of us sitting here has a what happens next situation in life right now. What happens next? And some of you are sitting here right now trying to figure out how we answer that question. And some of us are overwhelmed by the anxiety and the fear that comes with trying to answer that question. What is it about fear? What is it about fear that drives us to do sometimes irrational things, but often drives us to answer that specific question? Fear is kind of a strange thing. This week I was reading through the most common fears in America. And some of them seem normal, seem rational, but some of them seem completely irrational. Yet how many of us will make daily decisions to avoid our fears? Let me ask you, and we can make this a little bit of a game. Show of hands, and if you're comfortable doing it, raise your hand and tell me if you have one of these top 10 fears that are currently in America. I'll start with 10, and I'll work my way all the way down. Keep your hand up if you are willing and not too embarrassed to admit. Number 10, do you have a fear of ghosts? That was the 10th highest fear in America. Okay, good. None of you do. Very good. Number nine was clowns, was the number nine fear. Clowns. Anyone? I see one hand. Good. So we've got, cl- uh, we've got ghosts, we've got clowns. Number eight was strangers. Does anyone have a fear of strangers? Okay, we're all more than five years old in here. Good. So the next fear was flying. The fear of flying was a common one. I see some hands up. The next one was claustrophobia. Being in an enclosed space was a common fear. A few hands have gone up with that one. There's the fear of drowning was next. The fear of drowning. Several hands are up with the fear of drowning. The next one was a fear of bugs or snakes. Bugs or snakes. Well, there's a big one. That probably should be number one. Bugs and snakes is a common fear. The next one is the fear of heights. Anyone a fear of heights? Yeah, I definitely see some of that. And the most common fear, the biggest fear in all of America was... Public speaking was number one. Public speaking, which that's very odd. I would take this over a snake any day. So that's one of those things that we have. So what is it about fears? What is it about fears? They drive us. They're irrational at times, but they drive us. They motivate us to answer the question, what happens next? So here's Ruth and Naomi. They're sitting at this crossroad in life, this precipice of life, They've got to figure out what happens next. And Naomi is filled with fear, knowing there is no hope for her. But Ruth is filled with this tiny bit of hope in the God of Naomi, in the God that she has come to follow over time. She has this tiny bit of hope that's there. 
because fear can drive the answer to that question, what happens next? But there's something else that can drive the answer, and that is hope. Hope can also answer the question, what happens next? So I ask you today, what is your hope in tomorrow, today? What is your hope in? For many of us, our hope and our fears are deeply, intimately locked together. If your hope is in your job, one of your biggest fears is likely that you will lose your job. If your hope is in your bank account or your education, one of your biggest fears is the effect or the impact of those things not being able to help you anymore. If your hope is in your spouse, that could be a deep disappointment. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. That could be a deep, deep disappointment if that hope doesn't always come through. What about the hope we place in our children? What about the hope we place in our governments, in our politics? We place hope in all kinds of places that can deeply disappoint us, so our fears are often right where our hopes are. And Ruth and Naomi understood that. They got it. They realized that our hope is in something ahead of us, but our fear is also in something ahead of us. If you follow the story of Ruth and Naomi, you'll notice there is tremendous fear at this point in their story. But let me fast forward and tell you a little bit more about their story and what ends up happening. Ruth and Naomi leave, Bethlehem, leave Moab to head back to Bethlehem. They make the roughly 10-day journey back to Bethlehem. And on the way, and you'll notice how far they are, they're not right next to each other. They would have to go around the Dead Sea to get to Bethlehem. And when they get back to Bethlehem, they now have to figure out life. They have to figure out how to survive day to day. And this is not going to be an easy thing at all. They have to figure out how they will find their food, how they, where they will live, how they will survive. And so Naomi sends Ruth out because the famine is done in Bethlehem. Ruth, uh, Ruth goes out to now pick up pieces of barley that are left on the ground that they can now eat together and cook a meal together using leftover droppings of food that are left. And so there's this constant fear of what happens next. But Naomi offers this drop of hope to her daughter-in-law when she says, Ruth, I want you to go to this specific field which is owned by one of our distant relatives. That relative might show kindness to you and allow you to pick up the, drop, the food that's left over in his field. Go to that field. And so Ruth, every single day, goes out and picks up food from there in that field and comes home and prepares the meals with that. And every day she goes until one day she starts to find favor in the eyes of the owner of that field, a man named Boaz. And Ruth goes in day by day until finally when Ruth and Boaz have these interactions with each other, there is immense favor that's brought upon. Eventually, they fall for each other and Boaz and Ruth are married in this amazing moment at the end of the story when they give birth to their first son and you are sitting there reading and you say, wow, what an ending. If only they had known the ending when the beginning was. If only they had known how this would all turn out. They shouldn't have had fear. They should have had hope all along because there was a Boaz coming to save Ruth from the situation that she was in. And all of it seems like this tidy little fairy tale until you realize and until you stop and ask, why did God even include this story in all of Scripture? 
Why would God put the random or seemingly random story of a couple of widows in this canon of the Bible? Why would he include that story? And I think this is where you and I need to take a step back and realize what God was doing when hope and fear intersected with one another. Because Ruth's story does not start when a family from Bethlehem comes to her. Ruth's story, your story, my story started way, way before that. You see, in the Garden of Eden, when man decided to sin against God, he was separated from God, and it should have been an eternal separation. But the very same day that we sinned against God, God also promised that I will send you a savior. I will send you a rescuer. And the wheels start to fall into motion. All the pieces start to fall into place from that moment on. Sometimes we look at the manger in Bethlehem and we think, wow, what a glorious thing. As Pastor Brian said, Jesus did not come to just be born. And sometimes we separate this into one little event and not realize what God had been doing for lifetimes before that event. What God was doing was he was making a way where there seemed to be no way. He was bringing hope where there was only fear. He was bringing reconciliation where there was only separation. And so over time, we get to see what God was doing. Man is separated from God. And so God allows his people to go through all different situations from slavery to sin to allow them to see their need for a rescuer, their need for a redeemer. And all of these things start to happen in their lives. And you'll notice the pieces start moving. Do you notice how it's almost like chess, where God is starting to move the pieces throughout history, move the players around the world to put them in the right place to deliver hope at the right time. And in, in, in the same way, if you're asking why is Ruth in the middle of the Bible, because her chess piece is an important one that God had to move in the process of history. Because you might think everything is random, but a famine coming to Bethlehem moved a Bethlehem family down to Moab. That was a pretty dramatic move a chess move that had to be made because along the way they would meet this Moabite woman named Ruth who would become part of that family. And God would move another chess piece as Ruth and Naomi would come all the way back to Bethlehem, remember the name of that town again, would come back to Bethlehem. Ruth would meet Boaz and the two of them would be married and give birth to a son, another chess piece named Obed. And that name might mean nothing to you until you realize that Obed would have a son named Jesse. And that chess piece might mean nothing to you unless you realize that Jesse would have eight sons, one of them named David, who would become the king of Israel. Ruth, the great-grandmother of David, was a chess piece to lead to a king who would be born in Bethlehem, who would be the foreshadowing of the ultimate king to be born in Bethlehem. But David's story was one where all along Bethlehem would be known as the city of David because Israel's greatest king up until that point came from Bethlehem. And so God is moving the chess pieces. He uses famines. He uses people moving around, and he gets the right people into the right place until 700 years before the manger, 700 years before Bethlehem would become the greatest, most famous birthplace of all time, 700 years before that, a prophet named Micah would come, and he would say this, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 700 years before Jesus, this prophecy would be issued, that one is coming and he would be born in Bethlehem. The rescuer, the savior, the one who would reconcile all things will be born in that very same town. But Ruth, you first have to trust God and go back to Bethlehem so that your family line could be born in Bethlehem. And so 700 more years pass. This prophecy is out there. This family of David and their lineage is going down the lines one by one, 28 generations from David. We come to 700 years later, and all of the Mediterranean world is now ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire might seem like this big, powerful empire, but the truth is, in God's eyes, they're just another chess piece for his master plan. Because here's what God would do. One day, the emperor, the ruler of the entire known world, the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, would be sitting in his palace in Rome, and he would come up with this bright idea. Let's have a census. Let me see how powerful my nation really is. Let's count all the people in my land, and let's figure out how mighty the Roman Empire is. And so sitting in his palace in Rome, he would issue a decree that would have a direct impact on this little nation that we now know as Israel and the people that were living there. You see, if a king or an emperor declared a census, the only way to count people properly was to have them go back to their hometown to be counted. And there was in a town called Nazareth a young man named Joseph who was betrothed to be married to a young woman named Mary. And Joseph, who 28 generations or 27 generations earlier came from the line of David in the town of Bethlehem, would find himself in this town of Nazareth with his wife, who is now almost nine months pregnant, who is in her third trimester of pregnancy. And I want you to see this for a second because this is important. Does God move the chess pieces because he's in control? There they are in Nazareth at the top of that arrow. Sometimes we picture Nazareth and Bethlehem to be next-door neighbors to each other. Nazareth is 92 miles from Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus declares a census. Mary and Joseph leave Be uh, Nazareth and they walk. Let's remember, she's in her third trimester of pregnancy. They walk to Bethlehem, 92 miles. That baby could have been born anytime anywhere along the way. But God in his perfect control, God the chess master who knew what would happen, made sure that they got all the way to Bethlehem when they started knocking on doors to find out is there any place where we can stay tonight. And when there was no room to stay, finally an innkeeper opens up a door and says that there is a stable in the back, a stable meant for animals and a stable that would one day hold the king of all kings. God was moving the chess pieces from the beginning of time because he is in perfect control of history and your destiny. Everything is in his control. But here's what you and I often do in these situations. We believe that when the question, what happens next, comes up, 
We believe that I have to answer that question. I am in control. I am in charge. I have to answer that question. When God is reminding Ruth and Naomi and David and Jesse and Obed and Mary and Joseph and everyone else in history, you just take the steps. I am in control. I know what's happening. I have perfect charge over everything because I will move the pieces to make sure that hope comes in the middle of fear. I think if you and I are honest with ourselves, every single day we face the question, what happens next? With finances, with family, with jobs, with education, we keep coming back to ourselves. We keep trying to hold control, and because of that, fear has overtaken us. And here is God saying, if I was willing to move the pieces throughout history, don't you get who's in control? Don't you see who's in perfect charge? The promises I made are fulfilled. The promises I've made in your life will be fulfilled. Hold on to those promises because I am still in control. Instead, what do we do? We take control right back to ourselves, and as a result, fear has overtaken us. Anxiety has overtaken us. Things that we have no control over, we believe we need to have control over them. But this morning, God is reminding every one of us, you and I the same. Will you trust yourself and ultimately fall into fear again? Or will you trust the God that's been moving the pieces throughout history in perfect control to bring you hope? You see, hope and fear are connected because they both answer the question, what happens next? Which one will you choose this morning? Because here's the problem when I trust myself, I know my limitations. I know how little I actually know. I know how little I can actually do. And that's why I need to trust God. When I was about nine or 10 years old, I was playing baseball in the backyard of my parents' house and my older brother and I are playing back there and my younger brother was off playing with one of the neighbors and so we didn't really pay attention to what he was doing. My older brother and I are just playing, and while we're playing, we suddenly hear this uh, curdling, screeching scream come from a child, a young person screaming. And we knew right away something's not right. I turn around and I look and I see my younger brother. I can see him for a second. And then I realize that the scream is coming from his lungs because on his neck is latched a giant dog that's gripped onto his neck that's just twisting him back and forth like a rag doll and smashing him to the ground and picking him back up again and just shaking him constantly. I'm about nine years old at this moment. I turn around and I realize between my brother and that dog, the only person that could get to him fast enough is me. I'm nine years old and I realized even then there is so little I'm capable of doing. So I look at the situation, I start running. But as I'm running, I promise you, I was still thinking, what would I do when I get there? What am I going to do? This dog is double my size. There is nothing I can do. I was thinking in my mind, maybe I'll yell at the dog. Maybe I'll kick the dog or push the dog. Maybe I'll try to grab my brother. Maybe I'll throw something at the dog. But none of those options made sense to me because the problem was way bigger than I ever was. And as I get closer and closer to my brother, suddenly, out of nowhere, my neighbor's door opens and his son, who's older than us, who's in high school, he comes bursting through the door. He grabs the dog by the scruff of his neck and pulls him off and lifts up my younger brother. He calls for 911 and for rescue to come and help him. And thank God my brother recovered just fine after a bunch of scrapes and bites and cuts and stuff. 
he recovered just fine. But what does this story remind me of? Is that while I was running, I had no hope. There was no way I could do anything to save or resolve that situation unless hope came from somewhere else, unless a rescuer stepped in to provide hope in that situation. My friends, this is the story of Christmas. This is the story of a baby lying in a manger that you and I had no hope. Every single time we were to ask the question, what happens next? There should have been fear to answer that question. But because of this child, this promised Savior being born in Bethlehem, because of Bethlehem being what it was in history and what it would be that day, you and I have eternal hope in Jesus Christ. And so many of us, we struggle through each day wondering, where will my hope come from? I'll tell you what, the hope won't come from me and it won't come from you. It will only come from a savior. You and I need a rescuer. You and I need a redeemer. And that's who we have in Jesus Christ. The name Aldi Adelang may not ring a bell to many of you, but I read his story last year and it just captured me. Aldi Adelang is a 19-year-old boy from Indonesia and here's a photo of him. Aldi was the 19-year-old boy that you may have heard the story of who was fishing. Uh, his job, he was paid $130 every month to sit on what's called a fishing hut. He would sit there for a week at a time, and he would fish out in the deep ocean. They would live there, and he would fish in the deep ocean, and after a week, a boat would come and bring him back home, and he would start his next week the same way. Aldi was sitting on this fishing hut one day when a large storm came and ripped the hut from the moorings that were deep in the ocean, and now his hut has become a boat, a boat that's not meant to be floating on the ocean for long distances like that. And so Aldi, who has about a week's worth of water and a week's worth of food, is now floating over the deep ocean, and no one knows where he is. In fact, Aldi floats for 1,200 miles, and he's out there by himself for 49 days. Seven weeks he survives on the open ocean. He survives by fishing. He survives by drinking the little bits of water that he had and then soaking up salt water on his shirt and trying to drink the liquid part of the water off of his shirt. He survives for seven weeks. The great thing about Aldi is that he's a believer in Jesus Christ too. So when he was finally rescued, when a giant ship came by and rescued him and saved him from this ordeal, Aldi says like this, he goes, I was praying every single day and I trusted that God would provide for me. And the, the interviewers would ask him the question, Aldi, what was your biggest fear? And he would say it over and over again. My biggest fear was not that I would run out of food or that I would run out of water. It's that no one would come and save me that no one would come and save me. Aldi would go on to talk about how 10 different ships passed right by him, but he couldn't get their attention because of where he was. Aldi says, my biggest fear was that no one would save me. If you want to know where hope and fear collide in Bethlehem and why that matters, it's because it's our story. Your story and my story is that no one could have saved me except Jesus. That there was no hope, there was only fear until someone came to our rescue. And that's your story, and that's my story. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we prepare to close this morning. Many of you sitting here right now are facing the fears and the anxiety of tomorrow. 
the anxiety of where will my next paycheck come from, the anxiety of how will I prepare for the season ahead, what will I do about my children, what will I do about my family, what will I do about my jobs, you are facing what happens next types of questions. As you think about those, I want you to also think about what drives you when you answer that question. Is it fear or is it hope? Fear that you are in control and that you ultimately have no control? Or hope that there is one who would move all the pieces of history to make sure I had eternal hope? Where is your trust? This morning we have an opportunity to place our fears in the hand of God and to place our hope in the hand of God as well. When we close this morning, I want us to sing a worship song together. It's a song that goes, Jesus, Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer. Now, that word Redeemer means rescuer. It means someone who came and paid the price for me. Blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there's a line in that song that we're going to sing together, and that line goes like this, all our hope is in you. All the glory to you, light of the world. Church, this morning and this week ahead, you have a decision to make. When I answer the question, what happens next? Will I be afraid or will I put all my hope in you? Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you. Because the manger, because the stable, because Bethlehem, means so much more than just the birthplace of a good person. It means all our hope was fulfilled in you. It means the promise that we've been waiting for found its fulfillment in you. It means that everything that we hoped for came true in you, and for that we say thank you, Lord. God, I know there are days in my life where I think constantly about fear, about what happens next. But Lord, I thank you because I can place my fears in your hand this morning and I can trust you. I can put my hope in you this morning and for that I say thank you, Lord. God, I pray for every one of my friends this morning right now who are struggling with fear for the anxiety of tomorrow about what happens next. God, I pray that you would help them replace every fear with the hope that comes only in you. We thank you for your presence this morning. We thank you for your goodness in our lives. And God, as we worship you today, give us a heart to focus on the hope that is found in you today. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's rise to our feet and let's sing all our hope is in you. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10:45 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E. .org, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MT Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.